0: Morning, though, This morning, though, for those of you who are new to City Church, <clears throat> we're in a series. Actually, maybe we should call it a a mini series of sermons that we do each year around the Academy Awards, and it's called City Church at the Movies. As part of our emphasis as a church on engagement with our culture, we recognize that movies often give us insight into the hopes and the dreams. And the fears of our culture. And so we take a couple of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture and we reflect on the message of those movies. This year we chose Green Book, which we looked at last week. And today we're going to look at the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. How many of you have seen, by the way, the movie Bohemian Rhapsody? A bunch of you. Great. Um, For those of you who haven't seen it, Bohemian Rhapsody tells the story of the lead singer of the band Queen. His name is Freddie Mercury. And I have to say that in all the years that I've done this movie series, this is the most nervous that I've ever been reviewing uh, a movie. Uh, Because many of you are like hardcore Queen fans, and you have threatened me physically if I don't get this right. So I'm going into this with a lot of fear and trepidation. Freddie uh, Mercury was born Farouk Bulsara to an Indian Parsi family. He lived in Zanzibar at his birth. Freddie attended English-style boarding schools in India from the age of eight and then returned to Zanzibar after secondary school. In 1964, his family fled the Zanzibar Revolution, moving to Middlesex, England, when he was 17 years old, arriving at the perfect time to see the phenomenon that would become the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The title of this movie refers to one of Queen's most famous songs, a six-minute suite written by Freddie Mercury for the band's 1975 album, A Night at the Opera. The song, interestingly enough, was panned critically but it became Queen's most popular song and is widely considered one of the greatest songs in the history of rock music. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2004, and in December of 2018, just this past year, a few months ago, Bohemian Rhapsody became the most streamed of all classic rock songs. Mercury uh, refused to explain the meaning of the song. The band still remains protective of the song's secret, but Brian May, the lead guitarist for the band, has said that the song contains veiled references to Freddie Mercury's personal traumas. He said Freddie was a very complex person, flippant and funny on the surface, but he concealed insecurities and problems in squaring up his life with his childhood. And in large part, this is what the movie attempts to portray. A complex person, at once an immensely talented singer and performer, and yet also, at the same time, a deeply insecure, lonely and wounded soul. The film starts and ends at the band's appearance at the 1985 Live Aid concert, a concert that was organized to raise funds for the relief of the ongoing Ethiopian famine. And for those of us like me who are too young to remember the concert, Live Aid was watched by an estimated uh, by an estimated audience of 1.9 billion people across 150 nations. Nearly 40% of the world's population watched that concert. Queen's performance at that concert is widely considered to be the greatest live performance by a band of all time. The bulk of this movie describes how Freddie Mercury came to be a part of the band and then the band's most visible face and the band's rise to worldwide prominence. But the real emphasis of the movie is the impact that Freddie Stardom had on his life, personally and professionally. Critics didn't like this movie very much. They didn't like its lack of structural sophistication. They didn't like the lack of chronological accuracy uh, in the movie, among other things. But what's interesting is, just like the title song itself, their dislike for the movie didn't affect the movie's popularity. This movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, has become the highest-grossing musical biopic of all time. One thing that critics and fans alike uh, did agree upon, though, and that was the stunning, uh, the stunningly accurate portrayal of Freddie Mercury by the University of Evansville's own Rami Malek. Shout out to University of Evansville, if any of you are from U of E. Yep. Rami Malek won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his portrayal of Freddie Mercury in this movie. Let's do this. Let's watch the trailer for Bohemian Rhapsody, and then we're going to talk about the movie more in just a moment. A few years ago, I was listening... Uh, I was listening to an interview with a journalist uh, who's made a career of interviewing many very uh, powerful, very successful people. And he made the comment in the interview that the very attributes that made them powerful and and successful also made them unlikable people with whom he would not have wanted to be friends. When I watch a biopic like this one, I can't help but think about whether I would have liked the person uh, that the movie is portraying. Do you do that? I really have have no idea how accurately this movie reflected Freddie Mercury, but I came away from the movie thinking that I would have really liked him had I known him personally. Now that might be a surprise to some of you, especially those of you who've heard me speak about the fact that the Bible puts very clear boundaries around sexual expression, namely that sex is to be expressed only between a male and a female in the context of marriage. But if it surprises you, that I could like a person with whom I don't agree on a moral issue, it's only because you've bought into the simplistic and binary narrative in our culture that you're either in complete agreement with another person, or you're hateful and intolerant and can't stand that other person. I mean, surely. I I would have disagreed with Freddie Mercury about his expression of his sexuality, but I wouldn't have thought that that was the most important thing about him. His creativity his determination to be true to his convictions about his artistry, the deep commitment that he had to the people in his inner circle, the sweetness with which he generally treated those people, and even the pain at the core of his soul that led to his excesses and addictions, all of those things made him seem very human and, frankly, very likable to me. I found Bohemian Rhapsody to be a movie with deeply religious themes. Now, you may be thinking that I must have watched a different movie than you did. Um, But I think that just like you have to do with people, this movie is one that you have to look a little deeper than just what you saw on the surface. And I think if you do, you'll see that this really was a deeply religious movie. There's so many themes that we could talk about. I just want to highlight two specific themes in this movie that I think make it a deeply religious film. Let's start with this one. The longing for connection, the longing for connection. There's a telling scene in the movie, it's near the beginning of the movie, in which the band is meeting a record producer for the first time, and the producer asks the band, what makes them different from every other band? Listen to the loneliness and the longing for connection in Freddie's response. He says this, he says that Queen is four misfits who don't belong together, playing for other misfits, and the outcasts in the back of the room who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. Uh, That loneliness and that feeling of being a a misfit and an outcast must have been a feeling that Freddie was very familiar with from a very early age. In 2014, Rolling Stone magazine did a retrospective feature article on Freddie, and they commented in there, there, as a result of their research, they found that even when he was a young boy at boarding school, The people there remembered him as being lonely. And there's a couple of haunting scenes that occur uh, back to back, about halfway through the movie, that took my breath away and that lingered in my mind for days after watching the movie for the first time. In these scenes, Freddie is at the height of his fame. He's bought a palatial new mansion that he lives alone in, and he's showing it off to Roger Taylor, the band's drummer. While he's showing it off, Taylor jokes to him, he says, I'm not sure the echo is quite pronounced enough, which is a vivid reminder that even now, with all of the adulation of a global fan base, Freddie is alone in this huge home. Freddie invites him to stay for dinner, but he can't stay. Taylor says that he has to go home to his wife and to his kids. It's a poignant scene in which the contrast between these two men, one who longs for connection but is isolated and the other who is surrounded by the love of a family the contrast between these two men couldn't be more stark in the very next scene it's nighttime the only other presence in freddie's enormous and elaborate home is the recorded voice of an operatic singer freddie quietly picks up a phone dials a number and reaches the woman to whom he refers throughout the movie as the love of his life, Mary Austin. He and Mary had been engaged to be married, but when Freddie acknowledged to her that he was attracted to men, their engagement ended, even though the two of them remained very close throughout the rest of Freddie's life. But to keep her close, Freddie bought her a house right next door to his. And so when he picks up the phone and calls her, He reaches her. She picks up the phone in her upstairs bedroom. He asks her to go to her window and and look out of it. And the camera returns then to behind and below Freddie so that you can see the outline of Mary upstairs in her bedroom with Freddie in his piano room looking up at her. He turns on a lamp and he turns it off. And he turns it on. And he turns it off again. And he asks her, Do you see me? It was a terribly sad and lonely scene that was emblematic of the isolation and the deep loneliness at the core of Freddie's soul and the longing for a connection that he'd never really experienced. How ironic that one of the most visible and adored people in the world at that time was asking, Do you see me? That feeling of being invisible to the people that are around you. Anyone here ever known that kind of loneliness? The movie never says explicitly, but it hints at the fact that Freddie's deep loneliness arose out of his father's disapproval of him. And maybe maybe you felt that too. From a father who never liked you or never seemed to have time for you. Or from a mother who couldn't see past her criticisms of you to know the real you. Maybe to a husband or a wife or some other lover who ignored you. Everyone has felt loneliness to one degree or another at some point in their life. And the very fact that we can experience loneliness points to a need in the human soul For deep and meaningful connection with other people. But here's the question how do you explain that longing for human connection? Like, how do you explain that that longing exists? Because this is one of the reasons I said a moment ago that this movie reflects some deeply religious themes, because only religion can explain the relationality of the human soul, the longing. For relationship with the human soul. Science, you see, cannot explain this. Uh, I was reading recently a fascinating blog post uh, by a man by the name of Peter uh, Novella. He's a clinical neurologist, and he's a professor at Yale University. He wrote a book called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He has a podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Very well known. Novella argues that there is no observable scientific evidence for free will, meaning that all of the choices that we make in life only appear, only they only appear to be real choices. They're not real choices. They only appear to be, they're, they're just random firings of neurons and cells and chemicals in the brain that we're subject to, not in control of. He calls it subatomic randomness. Which is why I found uh, this particular blog post so fascinating. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to put it up on the screen so that you can follow along. He says, even though I am highly aware of what neuroscience has to say about the illusion of free will and decision making, I also recognize that we have to live our life as if we have free will. What's he saying? He's saying we have to pretend. He says, we do make decisions, and those decisions have moral and ethical implications. From an objective perspective, we are a fleeting grain of dust in a vast universe that does not recognize or care about our brief existence. But from a human perspective, in both time, scale, and space, we have a great deal of impact on the people around us and our little corner of the world. I choose to focus on the perspective that scales with my life and not dwell on our ultimate insignificance. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's saying that subatomic randomness can't account for it, can't explain, for instance, why his wife and children have an impact on him, why he loves them, why they love him. And so he's saying that the only way that he can really live is to not think about the implications of his beliefs. In other words, this brilliant scientist is acknowledging that for him to make sense of life, he has to live counter to his own intellectual understanding. Which, by the way, is a fascinating admission for a scientist who's often critical of Christians for being anti-intellectual. What could be more anti-intellectual than saying, I have to pretend like what I think and believe isn't true in order to make life work. Science, you see, can't account for the deep relationality of the human soul only religion can do that that's why i say this is a religious movie but do you only but do you realize that not just any religion can explain the relationality of the human soul only christianity can other religions can only point to the human capacity for a relationship but they can't explain the deep need for relationship At the core of our being. Only Christianity, again, can do that. And the reason is that only Christianity asserts that God exists in a relationship, in a trinity. One God in three persons who live in perfect relationship with one another. Which means, you see... That relationality, the need for relationship, is at the core of the universe. It is the deepest feature of reality, relationship is. It is the very nature of God. And it was out of that nature that we were created with a need for human connection. And in fact, in the account of creation in Genesis chapter 2, God states this in the clearest possible terms. He said, "The the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the emphasis of that verse, yes, one of the emphasis is that he is going to create a wife for this man, but the other is that it is not good for man to be alone. We need people. Freddie Mercury's loneliness and longing for connection, your loneliness and longing for connection, is an expression, you see, of the image of God in you. And here's where it's practical for us this morning as a church. It's because you were created in the image of God that as a church, we are so deeply concerned about your involvement in ministries, like our City Life Group ministry or our support and recovery groups or our women's ministry and other ministries like that, because you need other people in your life whatever stage of life you're in right now, you need other people around you and, and, and in your life, people who are encouraging you and challenging you and mentoring you and, and supporting you. Is there any organiza- If there's any organization in the world in which a person shouldn't have to ask the question, do you see me? It should be this one, the local church. But if I may if I may say this with with all of the love and the grace of Christ, one of the reasons that so many people drop through the cracks in churches is that so many of us, we're consumed with our own little holy huddle. Right now, you know, we're as a church in desperate need of people to lead and launch new city life groups to help people who are new to this church get plugged into meaningful relationships that will help them grow in Christ. But many of us are sitting in groups that we don't want to leave. We've made some friends, and we're not interested in helping other people make connections. But that certainly isn't how we're going to bring about spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. That will only happen as people in city life groups intentionally multiply and make it possible for other people to experience the transformative power of Christian relationships. And so could I challenge you to break out of your comfort zone and to start a new group that helps other people make the relational connections that are a part of the expression of the image of God in them that they so desperately need. And if you'd be willing to do that, put it on a card, uh, the, the connect card in the pew rack in front of you, grab it and... Just put your name and phone number and address on it, and say, "Yeah, I'd be willing." Email address, and just say, "Yeah, I'd be willing to." I'd be willing to start a, a life group and drop it in the offering bucket in a moment, or go to the welcome center outside in City Square after the service and tell somebody there that you'd be willing to do it, or contact Dustin Krantz. Dustin's our teaching and discipleship pastor. Here's his email address. Contact him and tell him that you'd be willing to start a group like that. There's a deep longing for connection at the the core of the human soul that can only be explained by the reality of the Christian God, which is one of the reasons again, that I argue that Bohemian Rhapsody is actually a, a movie that carries deeply religious themes. There's one other deeply religious theme that I want to, I want to look at from this movie. And I actually, I want to close on this one this morning and it's the theme of redemption. And you may have seen this. You may have noticed this in this movie. Uh, Freddie's family, as I mentioned earlier, are Parsi. The Parsi are part of a religious community that's older than Christianity itself. It's called Zoroastrianism, which incidentally was, uh, for those of you who know the Bible, uh, was the official religion of the Persian Empire during the life of Queen Esther. Redemption in Zoroastrianism is earned. And you may recognize this phrase if you saw the movie. It is earned by good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. And again, you may remember that was a phrase that Freddie's father repeated to him multiple times throughout the movie in a disapproving tone. Freddie's father chastised him. In fact, uh, there was this moment where he learns that Freddie has changed his name. And his father says to him, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. You can't get anywhere by pretending to be someone you're not. Well, near the end of the movie... Just before his appearance at the Benefit Concert Live Aid, Freddie's sitting with his father, his mother, and his sister in their family home. And according to the movie's timeline, Freddie has been diagnosed with AIDS already, which would take his life in 1991 at the age of 45. All of Freddie's teenage years and, and, and his adult life, Freddie's lived under the disapproving glare of his father. But now as he gets ready to leave for his home for the Live Aid concert, Freddie says to his father, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, just like you taught me, Papa. And for the first time in the movie, Freddie's father embraces him. In a moment that the movie clearly wants us to see as the moment that Freddie had finally earned redemption in his father's eyes. But as I saw that, I couldn't help but wonder, what was the cost of his father's rejection for so many years? What was the cost of his father's rejection for so many years? Is that what caused Freddie's deep loneliness? Was his father's rejection responsible for Freddie's inability to connect with people? The pain at the core of his soul? Did that wound from his father's rejection for all of those years contribute to Freddie's same-sex attraction? I don't know. We can't know those things. But I also wondered, in the end, did his father's rejection move Freddie to love his father more? I suspect not. You know, the Christian gospel looks at redemption in a very different way. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that we can never earn our own redemption by good thoughts and good deeds and good words. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We talked about it during communion. We sang about it after. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus did what we could never do, He earned our redemption, suffering the rejection of the heavenly father for us so that we would never have to experience the father's rejection. And you see, when a person understands this, when they understand what Jesus did for them, it melts the hardness and the rebelliousness of the human heart. It melts it into a heart of love. The apostle Paul once sort of summarized the gospel when he said this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Now do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that he's saying that God front-ended our redemption. In other words, he gave us everything on the front end while we were still sinners. All of the things that a human heart longs for the most, things like acceptance and forgiveness and membership in his family and security and, and grace and, and blessing and, and hope. He gave us all of those things on the front end before we had ever changed before we had ever obeyed him, before we had ever loved him, before we ever deserved any of those things, he withheld nothing from us that our hearts most longed for. And I have to tell you that I couldn't help but wonder, what would Freddie Mercury's life have looked like had his father understood that this is how God really redeems people? Through the cross, not through their good thoughts and their good words and their good deeds. How would that have changed Freddie Mercury's life? And you ask the question maybe, well, why would would that have made any difference to Freddie Mercury's life if his father had understood that? Well, please hear me on this. That the way you understand redemption will affect the way that you parent. And if I had a dime for every person that I have ever met or counseled or listened to in an interview or read about who said that they were raised in a fundamentalist Christian home, and then as soon as they got out of their parents' home, they wanted nothing more to do with Christianity. If I had a dime for every one of those people, I would be, I'd be wealthy. It's not always the parents' fault that that happens. But sometimes it is. Sometimes, even though those parents claimed to be Christians, and perhaps they really were, sometimes they didn't understand that God front ends our redemption. That the way he reaches hearts is by giving us the very things that our hearts most long for on the front end through his sacrificial death for us on the cross. That he didn't use fear tactics, criticism, guilt, shame, manipulation, and control to get us to conform to an external code of conduct before he blessed us. And I would say to fathers in the room today, would-be fathers as well. Mothers, would-be mothers. But would say to you that the most important thing that you can do for your children is to understand the gospel way of redemption and to let it so permeate you that you parent in the same way that God has redeemed you. By front-ending all of the unconditional love and acceptance that your child longs for. It is impossible to overstate the power of a father or a mother's unconditional love and acceptance. And if your children are grown, if you're a parent and your children are grown, they're adults now, and as you look back over the way you parented them, You recognize that your fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel affected the way that you parented them and affected them in a way that has created woundedness and or resentment towards you or to to Christ. Let me just say that there's no point in living with guilt and shame about it. You can't change the past. You need to accept Christ's forgiveness. But I do want to challenge you today to make contact with your adult child this afternoon. Today, this afternoon, don't wait. And to ask their forgiveness. And to explain where and why you went wrong. And that you misunderstood the message of the gospel. And so it affected the way that you parented your child. And I want to tell you that it might not change anything immediately. It might not change anything ever for your child. But it is impossible to overstate the healing power of a parent's apology. Redemption, gospel redemption. How you understand how God redeems will affect the way that you parent your children. It did in Freddie Mercury's father's life. It affected Freddie Mercury. And it will affect your children as well. Again, a movie that carries... Some very deeply religious themes. The human longing for connection that only Christianity can explain. And the power of gospel redemption in a person's life. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? And Lord Jesus Christ, there are... There's really nobody in the room this morning that... going to achieve the uh, amount of fame um, that Freddie Mercury did, but there are many people in this room that know the loneliness that Freddie Mercury experienced. And there are many people in the room this morning too, who came out of homes that claim to be Christian homes, perhaps they were, but that the parents didn't really understand the gospel and it's had an effect on people in this room today. People who have been burned. People who've been rejected. Who maybe even want nothing to do really with Christianity because of what they experienced in their parents' home. But Lord, I pray today maybe just through hearing about the gospel and gospel redemption how that affects the way that your parent? Maybe for those folks, it might even be just a the beginning of healing. And they would recognize that while their parents may well have meant well, that the criticism, the control, the legalism, the manipulation, that didn't reflect you at all. And Lord, would you maybe even just in this moment draw them? you and would you heal relationships as a result Lord thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for what you have done to reach us you didn't wait for us to clean up our lives you came after us and you front ended every blessing that our hearts would ever long for when you died in the person of Jesus on a cross we thank you for that and for the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is in your name that we worship and that we pray this morning.